We're in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they had found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the very word of God. Well, I'm excited this morning, getting back into the pulpit, preaching, but also um, this is the end of our uh, calendar year, ministry calendar year, which means that September is kind of the launch of a new season for us as a church, new sermon series coming, which I'll tell you all about next Sunday. Um, lots of exciting things coming, but that's not because we have made lots of awesome plans, although we have made plans for the next year. I'm excited because God is doing a great work. Uh, the message of Jesus that we reflect on regularly, the good news, the gospel, the church that he has built together is all for the purpose of then sending us out on a mission with an agenda, with good news, with anticipation for what God aims to do. I'm excited this morning as we bring to a close our sermon series we do every year here in August called Crosstown Basics. We talk about what we believe are the three absolute essentials for carrying out our mission of making disciples of Jesus by exposing people to credible gospel community. Those three essentials are the gospel, community, and mission. These three things are absolute essential if we are going to be shaped and formed into disciples of Jesus and if we're going to obey Jesus and make disciples of all people. So I'm excited as we come to the end of this series, but also as we get ready for the new ministry year ahead of us. And I'm excited perhaps because as we look back on this sermon series, uh, Pastor Jod two weeks ago preached to us a, mes a message called The Gospel of Resurrection. I told him that uh, I enjoyed the excitement I could see as he was preaching on the gospel of the resurrection. It, I'm excited because of a, of a of the, 
this quote that I want to give to you that I read recently that I think is helpful for us to kind of get on the same page. Uh, I want to speak, uh, this quote here is about the resurrection of Jesus and take this in for a moment. The resurrection is not an isolated supernatural oddity proving how powerful, if apparently arbitrary, God can be when he wants to. Nor is it at all a way of showing that there is indeed a heaven awaiting us after death. It is the decisive event which means that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if we actually believe that, then we believe and we understand that the resurrection of Jesus, what happened on that first Easter, means not just personal salvation. It means mission to the world. It's the whole reason why you are a Christian. You are not a Christian simply so that when you die, God will not judge you and you will enter into a heaven. You are a Christian because God intends to advance his purposes in this world through you and through me. To be a Christian is to embody the mission of Christ's gracious invitation into the transforming power of the kingdom of God. I would love for us to recapture that excitement. To be a Christian is to embody the mission of Christ's gracious invitation into the transforming power of the kingdom of God. The Christian mission that I'm tasked with speaking about today is the same as Jesus' mission. It is to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. It is to invite everyone into the kingdom of God. And it is to be transformed by its present reality. We are to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. We are to invite everyone into it. And we are to be transformed by its present reality. So let me speak to us this morning, if you will, on those three aspects from this parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22. You see, if we're going to succeed in carrying out the mission of God, then we need to remember and remind ourselves regularly what this mission is. And central to knowing the mission that God has sent us on is knowing the story that stands behind it all. And it's a story about the kingdom of God. The story of God's promise to restore all of creation and to bring it to its intended completion. The Bible tells a story of the kingdom of God. The promise that God will once again sovereignly rule over all creation so that justice and beauty and truth shine brightly in his world. Our mission then as Christians is, first of all, to announce that that long-awaited kingdom has come. It is here. Now, when you read the Gospels, you know, of course, that Jesus told many stories, many parables, 
all about this story, all about the kingdom of God. The one that we're looking at today is the third and final parable that Matthew has telling, has Jesus telling in a series. It goes back to Matthew 21, verse 28. These parables are meant to tell us something about the kingdom of God because Jesus' massive claim was that he was ushering in the long-awaited kingdom. But if so, as you read his parables, it seems that Jesus is doing this in a surprising, indeed subversive way, which is what the parables are meant to show. How was it so surprising? How was it so subversive? Well, just look back at the end of the last chapter where the chief priests and the Pharisees, they get the point of these parables that Jesus is teaching. Look at Matthew 21, 45. They understood he was speaking in these parables about them. Jesus was telling the story. The story of the kingdom of God. He was telling the story of Israel, but he was casting Israel's own leaders as Israel's chief enemies. That's a pretty subversive way of telling the story. And we can see that the point of this parable is quite clearly the announcement that the kingdom of God, like the king's wedding feast, is ready. It is at hand, as Jesus so frequently preached. But the problem, as Jesus tells these three parables in particular, is that the original invitees refuse to come to the party. Some even respond viciously against it. This is not just a retelling of Israel's story in the past, where everyone in Jesus' day was quite aware of Israel's long and troubled history. Carried away into exile in Babylon, Israel's hope had been renewed by Cyrus the Great's decree, allowing whoever wished to do so to return to the land of Israel. There was anticipation, expectation in the air. Is this the long-awaited kingdom of God? Yet even though so many Jews were once again in the first century living in the promised land, everyone knew that the promise of the kingdom of God was still unfulfilled. And all you had to do was take a look at that nearest Roman centurion standing nearby, his hand resolutely on his sword, and be reminded, this isn't it. Jesus then shows up first century, and he goes about proclaiming that the time is near. The time is at hand. God is about to do what he has said all along he was going to do. It's happening, Jesus was saying and claiming, right now in and through himself. And though he would be resisted and rejected by his own people, this would not be the frustration, but rather the fulfillment of the promise. This would be the moment when the divine plan, the, to- the story the Bible tells, is going to come to pass. So let me pause here long enough just to say that many Christians today have not been taught to read the story of Jesus like that. We are doing our best in our gospel project to tell our kids this story. Some of us are having to catch up to what our kids already know. You see, many have been taught that, yes, Jesus came announcing the kingdom, but 
Since Israel rejected it, God's promised kingdom was put on hold. And if you read the story of Jesus like that, then you're going to understand the mission of Jesus today quite differently. It makes a big difference if we view God's mission in terms of a kingdom that has been put on hold or a kingdom that has already been inaugurated. The mission's going to come out very differently based on your theology of the kingdom. And this sermon, by the way, will go in a vastly different direction if, depending on how the preacher and the hearers understand the kingdom of God. If you think that the kingdom of God has been put on hold, maybe until the second coming, or at least until some secret rapture of the church, then the mission will consist mostly about how you go to heaven when you die, or how not to be left behind when the rapture takes place. But if you understand Jesus to have succeeded in inaugurating the long-awaited kingdom, then the mission simply cannot consist only of news about the well-being of your bodiless life after death. It also must consist of news about what the king would have us do now in light of a kingdom that has already dawned. It's no doubt true that Israel, through her authorized leaders in Jesus' day, resisted the arrival of the kingdom of God. It was like they had waited for something for so long that when it finally came, they simply no longer cared about it after all. I've got an Amazon wish list. If you want to get me a gift, I'll send it to you. There's a lot of things on my Amazon wish list. But then sometimes I get a gift and I'm like, oh, thanks. You wanted that thing. It was on your list. And I've totally forgotten why I ever wanted it in the first place. So, taking a risk. This is how Israel is being portrayed in Jesus' parable. Israel is like a people who got an invitation in the mail, and when they got it, they said, sure, they, they went on, RSVP'd, yes, I'm coming. But when the day of the event arrived, you well, know, got something better to go to today. You don't do that when you RSVP to, like, the Mitchell family reunion, right? Like, you're going to sign up, say yes, and then you're going to come. Or, or you're not going to, like, not sign up because you're going to see if something better comes first. We don't do stuff like that. But that's what Israel did. They were the original invitees, and they said, yes, we're coming to the event. But when the event came, the wedding feast is ready. Time to show up. Something better had come. Some, again, even violently oppose it. And the parable includes, look at it, in verse 7, a telling sign of God's response. Look what it says. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. (laughs) Most commentaries will tell you that this probably is a prophetic reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Romans torched large parts of the city. Nevertheless, this is, Jesus said, 
exactly what God had planned. This judgment of God upon Israel did not delay the arrival of the kingdom. The destruction of Jerusalem was a sign, not that the kingdom had not come, but that, in fact, it had. This is what Jesus said the kingdom of God would look like. So the parable about the coming of the kingdom goes on. But the point that we need to grasp here, first of all, is that what happened to Jesus, his rejection by his own people, his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, did not hinder the arrival of God's kingdom. It was the divine means for inaugurating it. That is, of course, surprising. But if it's true, it means that the mission of God for us today cannot be altered from what it would have been upon the inauguration of the kingdom. And if we keep the story of Israel before us, the story of God's kingdom now come in and through Jesus, it will help us understand the mission before us. Okay, so already we see in this parable the subversive way that Jesus is telling Israel's story and announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. He's saying that the arrival of the kingdom of God is going to be matched by opposition to it, opposition from the very people who were on the original guest list. So what now? This opposition against the kingdom of God and the violence that ensues does not mean that God's kingdom will be delayed in its coming. No, rather, it means it means the guest list has changed. Now, that's not good news for the original invitees who are now going to miss out, but it's really good news for those who would otherwise never have been invited. Seen from their perspective, this is evidence that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of extraordinary grace. Indeed it is. And our mission as Jesus' disciples is to invite everyone, hear me, absolutely everyone into the grace of God and his kingdom. That's our mission. Now, let's let the parable do its job on us first. Take a look. Again, this is a story that's meant to show how it is that the kingdom of God is being inaugurated. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God can be compared to this. So think about how this story would would work on you and imagine the kingdom coming exactly in these ways. While on the one hand, the refusal of the original guests to come to the party presents a dilemma, because what good is a feast if no one's going to come to eat it? From another perspective, this is a spectacular opportunity. So look at it, verse 8. The wedding feast is ready, the king says to his servants in verse 8. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Again, I don't think it's hard to see the point that's being made here. Israel's resistance to the kingdom does not stop it from coming. 
The king doesn't say, well, just time out. No one's showing up. I guess we wait to find another day on the calendar. That's not what he does. No. God will see to it that his kingdom is filled with his citizens. So this time, the message goes out, and the invitation is met with happy receptivity. Look at verse 10. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. You wonder who the guests are that have shown up to the feast? You read through the Gospel of Matthew, and it's no doubt he's referring to the lower social classes within Israel in his day. You know them. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, and those other despised sinners. Yeah, the very ones that in Matthew 9, 11 through 13, Jesus tended to hang out with. We who have read Paul's letter to the Romans, I think we did that recently, we know that this point can be expanded out. Israel stumbled, Paul said in Romans 11, and the result is through their trespass, salvation has come to the nations. So you, Gentile, you should be excited. The invitation has expanded to include you because of Israel's trespass. Again, it is not that God's program, his mission to the world, had to adapt because Israel's resistance to its arrival frustrated the divine plan. No, not at all. This was the way the kingdom of God would come. Jesus, that's why he's telling the parable. This parable is telling us to look for comparisons to how the king filled his banquet room and how the kingdom of God gets its citizens. And when we step back then and see what has transpired since the first century, since the coming of Jesus, since the arrival of the kingdom of God, what we can say is that God, God has filled his kingdom with quite the cast of characters. You know, like you people. How did you get in here? This invitation has gone out to anyone and everyone. Well, what about, yep, them too. As many as you find, the king says, gather them in, bring them in. In fact, look what he says here. It says, they went out and they did just that. They gathered a congregation, look what it says, of both bad and good. Those descriptors reflect the way every society looks, every society works. Every society has a way, whether they admit it or not, of deciding who the good guys are and the bad guys are. Our society is no different, is it? You know who the good people are and those bad people. You're, you're, too, you're too holy to admit it, but you think that way. The point that's being made here is that the invitation into the kingdom of God is an open invitation. Everyone who hears the invitation is welcome to come. But what about yes? You mean absolutely. Everyone, I'm not stuttering. 
everyone. Brothers and sisters, this too is the nature of the mission that we must carry out. We are to proclaim good news to the world. We are to pronounce a gracious welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of who? Sinners. He welcomes everyone and anyone to the feast of his kingdom, not because everyone is worthy, but simply because everyone is invited. Oh, that the message that the church proclaims today to the world would take on the atmosphere of such lavish grace. We got work to do to make sure our mission, our invitation is heard with this kind of radical grace. The invitation into God's kingdom must be made without any hint of a prerequisite. Christian, church person, you got work to do on this. We don't do this very well. The only reason the original invitees were not worthy, in verse 8, is simply because they would not come. But whosoever will may come. When John brings the book of Revelation to a close, he hears the Holy Spirit and the church of Jesus Christ say, Come! <laughs> Revelation twenty two seventeen. let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. By the way, side note, if you're a faithful Calvinist, you should say amen. An invitation like that will not go unanswered. Look at verse 10. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Of course the invitation's gonna be answered. An invitation with such lavish grace like this, devoid of any prerequisite, just come. You can come. People are going to show up because there's good food here. The best food and plenty of it. There's plenty to drink no one goes thirsty. That's the mission. That's the invitation we are called to announce. So I'm asking us, as we get ready for this new ministry year together, I'm asking us to prayerfully remind each other and ask the Lord to help us remember that our mission is a mission of good news. <laughs> Too much Christian evangelism is framed as bad news. God is mad. You better do something about it. We need to be very careful that the message we proclaim sounds like the message of love that it is meant to be. God is infinitely loving. So he has done something remarkable. And the door is open for you to come and join the party. Again, our mission must be one that welcomes everybody to come. If you want to come, you can. You will not be cast out. And what is it we are inviting people into? The kingdom of God. In the terms of this parable, the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. A celebration of love. 
you don't show up to the wedding feast with a frown? <laughs> Come on. You're coming to the wedding feast, you're smiling. You better be. This is, of course, a wedding feast, as the parable says, for the king's son. This isn't hard to know what he's referring to. The kingdom of God is centered on the great story, the great love story of Jesus and his love for his people. So what we are inviting people to come to is the story of Jesus, his life, his love, his hopes, his dreams for the future. The kingdom of God is not about you and me. It's about Jesus. But make no mistake, it certainly will affect you and me who are invited to the party. And that point is made plain right here at the end of the parable. Somebody was saying, what are we going to do about verses 11 to 14? Oh, boy. These verses bring the parable to a close and probably leave some of us with a bit of a sour taste in our mouths, especially if we misinterpret its point. (laughs) I mean, just when we might hope for the next verses to say something like, and everyone had a fantastic time of joyful feasting, the story zooms in on one guest and his fateful encounter with the king. And the point of these verses is, again, not hard to see, however much we might want to make it say something otherwise. The mission requires us to not only announce God's kingdom and invite everyone into it, but it also demands that we be transformed by its reality. You see, the king's invitation is both an honor, isn't it? I mean, imagine getting an invitation to the wedding feast that a great king is throwing. Would you like to go to that? I mean, that's an honor. But the invitation is also a command. And the command is not simply to say yes to the invitation. I mean, if you don't say yes, you aren't going to be there. You got to go to seminary to figure that out. So, just wanted you to be impressed by that. The command is you got to come dressed appropriately. All right. So that's the important feature of the story in these last four verses. It's this wedding garment. So first of all, here's what you've got to know about a wedding garment in the first century. The, 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 the garments of a wedding were not some sort of expensive set of clothes like we probably expect when we go to a wedding. Rather, these are simply decent clothes. Just clean, usually white uh, garments that, that any individual 
would have access to. So what happens here when the king confronts the individual? Notice the man is speechless. In other words, he doesn't have an excuse. He doesn't say, well, you said I could come, but you really meant I had to go buy some real expensive clothes first. He doesn't say that. The man is speechless. He had access to clean, decent garments. He just simply refused to put them on. And he ends up getting the same fate as the first set of invitees who would not come to the feast at all. Look, he is cast out. Jesus is saying that people like this also do not enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, so let's interpret this part of the story. The wedding garment signifies the norms of the kingdom that must be accepted if you want to be a part of the kingdom. Now, does that invalidate the open invitation, the lavish grace that Jesus just uh, expounded to us in his parable? Has Jesus given with one hand and now he's taking it away with the other hand? Of course not. No one who came to the feast would say that they earned the right to be there because they dressed up appropriately. Are you letting the story do its work? If, if you're at this wedding, are you going to say, I got here because I put my clean clothes on? Would, would you even say something like that? You would say, I got here because uh, honor of all honors, the king invited. I can't believe it. This is not Jesus or his preacher, trying to sneak in some meritorious aspect of, salva- aspect of salvation. You know, you kind of actually do have to work for it. That's not what Jesus is doing, and I'm definitely not trying to do that. Some might be tempted to read it that way, and I'm sorry if that's what you do. I think you're misreading a parable. Nevertheless, you can't just ignore the point that Jesus is making here. Clearly, to do that, would be disastrous. So the point is readily readily understood, again, if we keep the story of the kingdom straight in our minds. This is not a question about how to qualify for the kingdom. The usual question that we have in mind when we think only about whether or not a person will be accepted into heaven when they die. If you're asking that question, then the answer is, only by grace. How do you get into to the kingdom? If that's the question you're asking, the answer is only by grace. But the kingdom of God is not about that. It's not about how do you qualify to get into heaven when you die. The kingdom of God is about what God is doing in his world. It's about the expectation that God has for the world that he has made and now that he has through Jesus redeemed. The Old Testament prophets said that when the kingdom of God comes, God would give to his people a new heart. So when the kingdom of God comes, the citizens of his kingdom are going to be transformed. 
So if Jesus did, in fact, inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom, then those who are its true citizens must be transformed. They, They must be dressed appropriately. The reason we Christians stumble over this and into the endless debates about the difference between legalism and obedience is because we are looking at each other's clothes. Setting ourselves up as the standard or justifying ourselves for feeling ashamed at how far short of the standard that we know we are. Plenty of churches are just stuck right there. Uh, the wedding feast, everybody's just wearing white clothes that are clean. Uniform, almost. Maybe not a bad idea. Instead of like, well, look how I'm dressed. So, but if what we're talking about here are the norms of the kingdom that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament have made plain to us, then what we're seeing here is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom in which Can we just, I I don't think anybody will complain about this. The kingdom of God is a kingdom in which God's love and justice and truth and mercy reign unhindered. And if you don't put on those clothes, you are making it rather clear that you really aren't interested in his party. You remember how our Lord taught us to pray? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Does this now make sense? Jesus is not saying, go forgive people and then God will let you, he'll forgive you. Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, it's a kingdom where forgiveness reigns. So if you don't want to put on the clothes of forgiveness toward your brother or sister, you are making it quite clear you're not interested in the kingdom of God. Now remember, the kingdom of God is a celebration. It's a celebration of Jesus and his story. To be a citizen of the kingdom to me means to be transformed by that story rather than by some competing story and make it plain to all your neighbor, to each other. We are constantly tempted to be shaped and formed by a different story. And the way to be transformed by this story, in other words, the only way to put on the norms of the kingdom is to know Jesus, love Jesus, and obey Jesus. Love, obey, know, yes, easier said than done, but God's promise is the power of his Holy Spirit to see it through in every one of his people. Verse 14 even calls them his chosen people. For many are called, but few are chosen. God's chosen people are not those who merely say yes to his invitation, but those who actually show up and find themselves transformed by its glorious reality. Now, this is the whole reason why gospel and community necessarily precede mission. The story of Israel, the story of God's chosen people, is the story of God transforming his world through his chosen, transformed people. 
Don't you see, Christian, if you and I are not transformed by the story of Jesus, then we will end up only bringing into the world more darkness rather than light. Every professing Christian needs to be appropriately fearful of the warning here. If you're not transformed by the story of Jesus, you will be cast out into outer darkness. At the same time, every professing Christian needs to be appropriately hopeful For this transformation is what God has promised to bring about in his people for the sake of his kingdom agenda. And that that kingdom agenda, our mission in his world is sure to succeed as well. It will succeed evangelistically as we throw open the invitation to everyone and invite whosoever will to come join us in the work of God's kingdom. It will succeed politically Yes, it will, as we seek first the kingdom of God rather than our own security in what the kingdoms of men want to offer to us if only we will sell our souls, if not our wholehearted endorsement, at least your vote, to the powers that be. And it will succeed vocationally as we see the problems and opportunities in this world that God has made, and then get to the work only after having sat before Jesus in his word, in prayer, and in community, seeking the wisdom of his spirit to allow us to bring his will to bear in every circumstance of life. So I ask you, Christian, sent out on his mission, what are the problems and opportunities you see in his world? Just think about them in your home. Think about them in your neighborhood. Think about them in your workplace. What are the problems and opportunities you see in this world? What might the power of Jesus and his resurrection bring to those problems and opportunities? That is our mission, church. It is our mission, and it is our mission. It is to be pursued together. As one writer explains, of course, no one individual can attempt more than a fraction of this mission. That's why mission is the work of the whole church the whole time. Some will find God nudging them to work with handicapped children. Some will sense a call to local government. Others will discover a quiet satisfaction in artistic or educational projects. All will need one another for support and encouragement. All will need to be nourished by the central worshiping life of the church. And that central life will itself be nourished and renewed as the friends of Jesus come back to worship from their mission in the world. I hope by now you see how the gospel of Jesus, the community of his people, and the mission of his kingdom go together. And I hope that once again, we are energized by these three basics of Christian discipleship to move forward together in the new ministry year that God has ahead of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for what you have brought us into. It's like 
a king throwing a wedding feast for his son. And Jesus, who was rejected by his own, did not fail to inaugurate his kingdom. Not at all. Rather, the way this kingdom has now broken into this broken world is with a lavish invitation of grace. A welcome to anyone and everyone who wants to come to the party. Come. Yes, come, but you will be transformed. You better know it. You're going to be changed, not to look like your brother and sister next to you, but to look like Jesus. The one that this story is all about anyway. So I pray, oh Lord, that you would do your work through your word and by your spirit. Make us hopeful for every sinner this morning who wonders if God will accept him. May he or she hear the message, come, just come to Jesus. For every Christian who is plagued by sin and wonders, will I ever be free Will I ever be transformed? May they hear the glorious message, come. The story of Jesus is going to transform you. Yes, it will. But for every cold heart who has forgotten the message of Jesus and the message of his kingdom is good news for a present broken world, may they once again catch a vision for what the world will be like because of the transforming power of a crucified and risen Savior. Make us hopeful, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.